0: This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's time for a little play called Hamlet.
1: Who's there? Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Long live the king. Now, mother, what's the matter? Hamlet, thou hast thy father much offended. Mother, you have my father much offended. Madness. Madness. In great ones must not unwatched go. Alas, poor Yorick! I knew him, Horatio. I loved you not. I was the more deceived. Get thee to a nunnery. To be, or not to be, that is the question.
0: All right, you probably don't need it, but I'm going to give you a short summary, anyways. This is Hamlet in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is not so rotten in the state of Denmark. True, the king is dead, but his wife Gertrude has married the new king, Claudius, and there's a tentative peace with neighboring Norway. All would be fine, except that several people have been seen a ghost of the dead king. Prince Hamlet, the king's son, searches for the ghost, finds him, and is told that the king was actually murdered by the new king. The news sends Hamlet into a spiral of mixed emotions leading to concerns over his mental health and the destruction of his romance with Ophelia, the daughter of Danish spymaster Polonius. When an acting troupe arrives, Hamlet conspires to have them reenact a play about a man who commits regicide, and sure enough, during the performance, Claudius Claudius's conscience is pricked. The ghost was right in his accusations. Confronting his mother, Hamlet accidentally kills Polonius, who was hiding in the curtains. Claudius sends him to England along with a secret note instructing the English to kill Hamlet. When the ship is seized by pirates, Hamlet escapes and returns to Denmark, where he finds Ophelia has killed herself. Her brother Laertes, blaming Hamlet for his father's death, challenges Hamlet to a duel. The king conspires to dip Laertes' sword in poison and have poisoned wine on hand to ensure Hamlet dies. It all goes tragically awry, and by the end of it, Laertes, Claudius, Gertrude, and Hamlet are all dead. The rest is silence. The most famous of Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet has become almost as immortal as Shakespeare himself. If in 500 years we find that people have forgotten Much Ado About Nothing or Julius Caesar, I'm not sure I'd be particularly surprised. But I'd be stunned if Hamlet had not endured. Part of the play's popularity, no doubt, is because of its eponymous hero. In every generation, the great actors flock to the role to prove their mettle. Looking at the history of theatre, it's no surprise that the plays which have become the most popular are those with the greatest roles for men. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and even part of the 20th, theatre was an industry dominated by actor-managers, who were always looking for plays that would give them an excuse to take center stage. I'm not sure I would go this route if I were an actor-manager, since, as far as I can tell, Hamlet has become the worst role in the entire canon. This is more because of the audience than the playwright. These days, everyone has to study Hamlet, and many people walk into the theater having some opinion on how he should be played. In short, the problem with Hamlet is that everyone is watching the actor who plays Hamlet. Much as Falstaff threatens to overshadow Henry IV Part I, so too does Hamlet the character overshadow Hamlet the play. As a character, Hamlet is the antithesis of Prince Hal, who runs off to Shrewsbury to defend his father's crown. Hamlet himself wants nothing to do with the throne of Denmark, which is why he spends so much of the play wondering whether it's better to be or not to be. At the time when Hamlet is set, kings had to be appointed by the Danish parliament, and it wasn't a foregone conclusion that a son would ascend the throne. In Act 5, Hamlet remarks that, quote, He that hath killed my king and whored my mother popped in between the election and my hopes. On his deathbed, or rather death floor, as the case may be, he also says, I do prophesy the election lights on Fortinbras. He has my dying voice. So what seems most likely, then, is that Claudius won the support of the nobility, much as Henry Bolingbroke did when he usurped the crown from Richard II. Given that in England, Henry's usurpation led to the War of the Roses, it's notable that nobody in Hamlet seems all that eager to unwind the bloody flag. Least of all, Hamlet himself. The Danish nobility are not interested in crowning Hamlet, since not one of them lends him their support. Confronted with the truth about Claudius, Hamlet can only turn to Horatio and, to a lesser extent, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. In short, he has no friends in court, and one doesn't have to look much further than the problems with Norway to see why.
2: Our last king, whose image even but now appeared to us, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway, thereto pricked on by a most emulate pride. To the combat, in which our valiant Hamlet, for so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this Fortinbras, who by a sealed compact, well-ratified by law and heraldry, did forfeit with his life all those his lands which he stood seized of to the conqueror. Against the which a moiety competent was gauged by our king, which had returned to the inheritance of Fortinbras, had he been vanquisher, as by the same comat and carriage of the article designed, his fell to Hamlet." Now, sir, young Fortinbras, of unimproved metal, hot and full, hath in the skirts of Norway here and there sharked up a list of lawless resolutes for food and diet to some enterprise that hath a stomach in't, which is no other, as it doth well appear unto our state, but to recover of us by strong hand, and terms compulsatory those foresaid lands so by his father lost.
0: What all this means is that King Hamlet killed a Norwegian king, and the king's son, young Fortinbras, wants revenge. Given this, it's extraordinary that young Hamlet would throw Fortinbras his support moments before he dies. Perhaps by then he has come to finally understand someone who was driven by revenge. In any case, you can forgive the Danish nobility for not wanting King Hamlet's son anywhere near the crown. Giving the throne to Claudius is meant to be seen as a peace offering to the Norwegians, which is exactly how the new king of Norway takes it.
1: Say, Valtimand, what from our brother Norway? Most fair return of greetings and desires. Upon our first, he sent out to suppress his nephew's levies, which to him appeared to be a preparation against the Polack, but better looked into, he truly found it was against your Highness, Whereat grieved that so his sickness, age, and impotence was falsely borne in hand, sends out arrests on Fortinbress, mm-hmm. which he in brief obeys, receives rebuke from Norway, and in fine makes vow before his uncle never more to give the assay of arms against your majesty. Hmm. Whereon, old Norway, overcome with joy, gives him three score thousand crowns in annual fee, and his commission to employ those soldiers so levied as before against the Polack, with an entreaty herein further showed, that it might please you to give quiet pass through your dominions for this enterprise, on such regards of safety and allowance as therein are set down. It likes as well.
0: Plenty of productions eager to make cuts to what is Shakespeare's longest play tend to trim down all these political problems with Norway. This is a brutal mistake, since the political backstory explains why Hamlet is every bit the neutered prince. He is a persona non grata in his own court. No one knows what to do with him, and everyone more or less wishes he'd go back to school in Wittenberg. Everyone, that is, except for Gertrude, who is the only one who can get Hamlet to stick around in Denmark. By his own admission, Claudius murdered his brother for, quote, the crown, mine own ambition, and my queen, end quote. And yet, something good has come of it all. When Hamlet begins, the kingdom's politics are actually in a fairly stable place. Claudius is on the throne, the nobles are happy, Denmark's enemies are happier. The great irony of Hamlet's beginning is that even though an injustice has been performed, namely the king's murder, Denmark is politically in much better shape. All is not so rotten in the state of Denmark until Hamlet, prompted by his father's ghost, comes along and makes a mess of the whole darn thing. Even when we consider Shakespeare's predilection for ghosts and the supernatural, the ghost in Hamlet is something unique in the canon. In Julius Caesar, Richard III, and Macbeth, it could be easily argued the ghosts are figments of a guilty conscience. If the ghost of King Hamlet had appeared before Claudius, it would all be par for the course for our friend Shakespeare, but the ghost appears to Marcellus, Bernardo, Horatio, and Hamlet. None of them are murderers, none of them have any reason to see a ghost, unless the ghost is actually there. Shakespeare's intent was clear. The ghosts in all his other plays could be interpreted as figments, but in Hamlet, The existence of the supernatural is unequivocal. The ghost of King Hamlet is very, very real. He's also a very, very important plot point. You could arguably do Julius Caesar, Richard III, and Macbeth without all the ghosts, and the story would at least chug along. But without the ghost of King Hamlet walking around Denmark, the play grinds to a halt. The ghost's reality can't be questioned. Part of what drives Hamlet is not just the crime that was committed, but the manner in which it was reported. What drives Hamlet isn't just all that pesky adultery and reach-aside. It's also the fact that the laws of the universe have been so rearranged that the dead are walking among us. The question for Hamlet is not whether the ghost existed, but rather whether there's any truth to the things that he said. The ghost haunts the rest of the play, even though he is rarely mentioned, and only appears once more while Hamlet is arguing with Gertrude.
1: Save me. And hover o'er me you with your wings, you heavenly gods. What would your gracious figure. Alas! He's mad! Do not come your tardy son to chide? That lapsed in time and passion, let's go by the important acting of your dread command. Oh, say. Do not forget. This visitation is but to whet thy almost blunted purpose.
0: I'm not bothered by the fact that the ghost appears before everyone in the first act, and only before Hamlet in the third. This is a ghost, after all, and I imagine they can do what they like. Certainly, this second appearance could be one of those cases of Hamlet imagining things, but that would deny the ghost his narrative power. The character is one of the most important figures in the play, precisely because he is truly haunting Denmark, demanding vengeance. His second appearance, then, is calculated to remind Hamlet of his mission, just when Hamlet himself is starting to doubt. The ghost appears before Hamlet while he's talking to Gertrude, which brings us to an interesting question. How culpable is Gertrude in the death of her husband? The ghost accuses her of adultery, which in itself would be a bad enough crime, but one has to wonder how much she knew about the murder too. Then there's the fact of her over-hasty wedding, the one whose feast was furnished by all those funeral meets. Why did Gertrude marry Claudius with such speed? It's delightful to speculate about a pregnancy. Nothing in the text suggests Gertrude's age, and given how young women were when they were married off in those days, it's conceivable she had Hamlet when she was still in her teenage years. On the other hand, the fact that Hamlet is their only child would suggest either a history of infertility or an abundance of children who didn't survive. In any case, I've never seen a production suggest that Gertrude is pregnant, although I really wish one would try. The existence of a potential heir to Claudius's legacy would create an added layer of conflict to Hamlet's central dilemma. That being said, what is more likely is that Gertrude's overhasty marriage was probably about both religion and politics. The Bible, after all, dictates that when a man dies, his brother is obligated to marry the widow. And when that brother happens to be someone the politicians of Denmark would like to see on the throne, well, the entire arrangement becomes one of political convenience. All of these questions are part of that rich backstory to Hamlet, and while they're intriguing to actors, they don't really help us get at that central question. I'll ask it once again. Did Gertrude know that Claudius poisoned King Hamlet while he took that ill-fated nap in the garden? Hamlet certainly lets us know where he stands on this question.
1: Oh, what a rash and bloody deed is this! A bloody
0: deed. Almost as
1: bad, good mother, as kill a king. And marry with his brother.
2: As kill
1: a king? My lady, it was my word. <laughs>
0: Sadly, we never see Gertrude alone, and so we never know if she thinks her offense is as rank as Claudius does. One could argue that if she had been culpable, the ghost would have mentioned this, but then one could also argue that the ghost of King Hamlet only knows what King Hamlet himself knows. Claudius didn't hire an assassin, he showed up in the garden himself, so it's possible that even in death, the ghost is not omniscient. In the end, Shakespeare left it an open-ended question, and I'd suggest that Hamlet is a much more interesting play as a result. Hamlet is the hero, Claudius is the villain, but what, oh what, is Queen Gertrude? I haven't exactly made up my mind. The one thing I do know is that Gertrude is suffering from the same nihilistic guilt as Claudius himself. The lady doth protest too much, as Hamlet says elsewhere, and Gertrude is in no mood to listen to a litany of her crimes spoken by her only son. The exact extent of those crimes is left to us to ponder, though I suspect I know which way Shakespeare was leaning. He keeps her crime mystery, but makes her ultimate reaction to it 100% clear. Like Ophelia, Gertrude drowns herself, though in her case, it's in a cup. Poison poisoned wine. Shakespeare uses suicide in a very specific way. Characters die out of shame, such as Brutus and Cassius, or love, as with Romeo and Juliet. But no one ever kills themselves by mistake in Shakespeare's plays, and it would be surprising if he had started now just so he could add one more corpse to the floor of the stage. There is something infinitely more dramatic and tragic in having Gertrude be racked with guilt. I also suspect that Shakespeare intended for Gertrude to discover the truth about Claudius as the play progresses. A Gertrude who is in league with Claudius when the play opens has no character arc. But a Gertrude, who slowly realizes she is married to her husband's killer, becomes racked by shame and then kills herself to save her only son, well, that's far more dramatic. Gertrude's suicide, as I've mentioned, echoes that of Ophelia, and there's no doubt in my mind that one plants the seed for the other. There's a great theory bouncing around, I encountered it in an essay by screenwriter Alex Epstein, that Ophelia is pregnant with Hamlet's child. Dramatically, this is an exciting theory since it both adds urgency to her scenes with Hamlet and tragedy to her eventual death. The theory rests mostly on the implications found by reading between the iambic pentameter, Hamlet has given private time to Ophelia, and Ophelia has welcomed it. In truth, I'm less interested in the textual evidence than I am in the dramatic one. Without a pregnancy, Ophelia is a mysterious character who turns on her boyfriend at her father's request and then, a couple of scenes later, throws herself in a river. At the pregnancy, however, and Ophelia's motivations suddenly make sense. She needs Hamlet to marry her, to save her and the child from a life of shame, and she needs Hamlet to be sane enough so that the marriage is never invalidated and her child is not cursed even before he or she is born. Hamlet, however, probably knows nothing of Ophelia's pregnancy if it does exist, so he thinks nothing of fooling her when he knows she is spying on him at the beginning of Act 3. This is, of course, the moment when Hamlet gives a little speech about whether 'tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. To be
1: or not to be, that is the question. Whether 'tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles And by opposing end them To die, to sleep, no more And by a sleep to say we end the heartache And the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished To die, to sleep, to sleep Perchance to dream, aye there's the rub For in that sleep of death what dreams may come When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. As David
0: Ball points out in his excellent book, Backwards and Forwards, this isn't a soliloquy. Hamlet knows someone's listening to him, and his suicidal thoughts are as much a ploy as his feigned madness. If there was ever proof that Hamlet had completely lost sight of what was good for his father's kingdom, it's in this dangerous game in which he pretends that he has come unhinged. No good can come out of convincing Denmark's political elite that he is unbalanced. If revenge does come to Claudius, and Hamlet himself can't rally support, there would be no clear successor to the throne, and it could lead to civil war. But Hamlet, never one to care about politics, hardly cares about such things. Hamlet the play is very much about what happens when you sacrifice the political in favor of the personal. Claudius and Gertrude do this with their dangerous affair, Laertes does this when he challenges Hamlet to a duel, and Polonius does this when he sends his spy Reynaldo to Paris to keep a watch on his son. No one in Hamlet seems at all interested in running the state of Denmark. Fortinbras is running around trying to force a war, but that's just a minor problem to Hamlet and his family. They're all content to just bicker with each other, each of them fighting against each other for their personal gain. The great acclaim given to Hamlet the play for the last four centuries means that we tend not to discuss the play's shortcomings, which are all too apparent in the fourth and fifth acts. Though determined to avenge his father's death, Hamlet never actually gets around to doing it. Claudius is never exposed for killing the king, and it is Laertes who reveals in open court that the king has sabotaged Hamlet's duel. Hamlet murders Claudius almost as an afterthought. The truth is, Hamlet has no proof of his father's murder. What evidence does he have other than a ghost and Claudius' reaction during a reenactment of a play? These things would hardly stand up in any court. Claudius actually dooms himself with his own actions, both by conspiring against Hamlet and by trying to have Hamlet executed in England. One could argue Claudius is sabotaging himself since he can't live with his guilt, he's the one who says, after all, that his offense is rank, but this has little to do with Hamlet. In short, having established Hamlet's objective, Shakespeare fails to write a play that will give him the mechanism to obtain it. Now this may have been intentional, by the time Hamlet was produced, Shakespeare appeared to be heading into the nihilistic mood that would permeate plays like King Lear and Antony and Cleopatra. It's possible Shakespeare wanted to create a play in which the hero would be incapable of getting what he wanted. This would be the true tragedy of Hamlet in this interpretation, not that he and everyone he loves dies, but that he knows his father was murdered and he is unable to obtain justice for the crime. His only choice is to commit crimes himself. In his last moments, Hamlet becomes as bad as the uncle who crept into the garden to drop poison in his father's ear.
2: The king, the king's to
1: blame. Point and venom to. Then venom to thy work. (laughs) Oh, yet defend me, friends. I am but hurt. Thou incestuous, murderous, damned Dane, drink off this potion. Is thy union here? Follow my mother!
0: (laughs) Hamlet is an extraordinary play, but we would be doing Shakespeare a great service if we stopped talking about it all the time. Newcomers to the play would also be wise to steer away from all the books that have been written about it, and even from a synopsis. People who have not seen Hamlet before should approach it without any preconceived notions, so they can judge it for themselves. In Backwards and Forwards, David Ball reminds us that once upon a time, no one watched Hamlet knowing how it was all going to end. The drama in Hamlet came from its dynamic premise. A ghost showed up and claimed he was murdered by the most powerful man in the country. Is he telling the truth? Is he a devil who has come to sow discontent? How do you ferret out the truth? And what happens when, knowing the truth, you still can't do anything about it? The place fame has made us so accustomed to this premise that we tend to forget how ingenious the place concept truly is. Now, it would also be good if people stopped worrying so much about who plays Hamlet. Most of the play isn't actually about Hamlet. Yes, yes, he talks a lot, but the action of the play comes from the people's reaction to Hamlet, rather than from Hamlet himself. Creating a good production of Hamlet lies not in casting a good Hamlet, but rather in finding good actors to play Ophelia, Claudius, and Gertrude. It's them who provoke Hamlet and drive him to feign madness, alienate himself, abandon Ophelia, murder Polonius, arrange the deaths of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, battle Laertes, and murder Claudius. In open court. In other words, without the other characters, there is no Hamlet, either the character or the play. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. When it comes to films based on Hamlet, it's all too easy to suffer the tyranny of choice. It's been endlessly parodied, satirized, and referenced, and since everything in this life eventually becomes a musical, it even saw itself infected with songs in the Doom 1976 musical Rockabye Hamlet.
1: If my morning begins with a sunrise If my eyes can take in the light Are the morning and light not mine to enjoy?
0: Now, in the 1990s, Kenneth Branagh's success with Much Ado About Nothing and Henry V spurred a minor Shakespearean cinematic renaissance, and one of the results was three vastly different versions of Hamlet, which came out almost around the same time. I'm going to concentrate on these, which leaves Laurence Olivier's effort out of the running, as well as the version filmed for television by the BBC, both of which are worth checking out, and which I'll leave links to on the show page. Mel Gibson's 1990 Hamlet was back made when Gibson was one of Hollywood's most dependable action stars, and while his dramatic acting isn't always up to Shakespearean heights, he does at least a credible job as the Danish prince. The true villain in this piece is the screenwriter, who adapted it. This Hamlet is more or less a best-of version, with all the famous beats intact, while the rest of it it gets cut away. This means the film plays fast and loose with the plot, which is admittedly one of the primary problems with all productions of Hamlet. Its fame means that people tend to feel better about cutting things, since they assume the audience will fill in the blanks. The result can often feel like a rushed, hodgepodge assortment of Shakespearean scenes, which is what we get with Mel Gibson. On the other end of the spectrum is Kenneth Branagh's lavish 1996 version, which has the distinction of using the full, unabridged text. This means that the movie is almost four hours long. It has a cast of thousands, just like the old MGM movies with Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, Kate Winslet, Derek Jacoby, and others making appearances. At the center of it all is Branna as Hamlet, who has said it in the late 19th century. This makes a nice parallel between the fall of Denmark, as depicted in the play, and that of all the empires of Europe which fell at the beginning of the 20th century in World War I. The acting is generally fine across the boards, though I remain unmoved by Branagh's Hamlet, mostly because, to be frank, he strikes me as being too old for the part. I like my Hamlet's young, which is not usually how I get them. Like Prince Hal, Hamlet's youth is part of his character, and I find it hard to believe an older Hamlet would be as naive about politics as the plot requires him to be. This may be why I have some affection for the 2000 version starring Ethan Hawke, which modernized the play and set it in New York. In this version, Claudius is the head of the Denmark Corporation, and the Danish court has been replaced by a board of directors. On stage, I generally dislike modernizations, but I don't seem to mind as much when we're discussing film. If you're going to adapt something, you might as well go all in. Hawk is a hipster of a Hamlet, and his adaptation has great fun incorporating what was then cutting-edge technology. When Hamlet sabotages Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he does it by hacking an email. That being said, I'm not sure how I feel about removing Hamlet from its political underpinnings. When Denmark becomes a corporation, the entire story sort of loses its stakes. Out of these three films, which one would I recommend? I'm actually going to have to go for Branagh's version, if only because it's so complete and, generally speaking, pretty traditionalist. Adaptations of Hamlet are ultimately only ever interesting to people who know Hamlet. If you're a newcomer, you might as well see the play in its entire lengthy four-hour glory. I'm also going to recommend another film called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead. Now this was based on a play by Tom Stoppard who wrote Shakespeare in Love, so you know that he's a writer who knows his way around Shakespeare. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead is a behind-the-scenes look at Hamlet and depicts Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as hapless fools who have no idea what's happening in the world around them.
1: Can I see a game? We're spectators. Do you want to play questions?
2: How to you play that? You have to ask questions. Statement, one love. Cheating. How? I hadn't started yet.
1: Statement, two love. Are you counting that? What? Are you counting that? Foul, no repetition, three love in game.
0: The play is wildly funny, especially if you have a solid grounding in Hamlet, so once you've sat through Branagh's version, I suggest you check out the film made from Stoppard's play, which features Gary Oldman, Richard Dreyfuss, and Tim Roth. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, we go back to the world of romantic comedy, It's Twelfth Night. For more information about this podcast, you can always visit my show page at wwwjoelfishbanenet slash Shakespeare And hey, while you're there, why not check out the rest of the website to see what else I do with my time. You can find information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight foot tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. And it's available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbard. 22 plays down, 16 to go.
2: Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and
1: (laughs)
0: cough through it.